University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. You remember way back in January, I preached a series entitled 2020 Vision. We were going to look at the, with great joy and anticipation at all the beautiful things that we were going to accomplish this year. Doesn't it feel like January was 36 months ago rather than 11 months ago? I'm going to go out on a limb and say that 2020 was the worst year on record for quite a long time. Wildfires, a polarizing election cycle, a global pandemic that has killed 265,000 in the United States, infected over 3.2 million with millions unemployed. It shattered all our hopes for this year. I don't want to uh, say this as if I'm, I'm alone, but you might agree with me, but I'm not too fond of this year. It's been awful. It was supposed to be the year of, of great things, at least we could see things with perfect vision, right, 2020. But instead, this has been a year of loss, tragedy, certainty, a year of anger and resentment and distrust and hopelessness. And now we enter into the season of Christmas. Trees and lights, wreaths and gifts. I don't know if I'm in the mood for it. Are you? Maybe we need Christmas now more than ever. Perhaps we need this season to recenter our lives around hope mid gloom, joy within sorrow, faith during uncertainty, and love within strife. So today we're beginning an Advent season, and we're going to start it with a new series entitled Noel, Hope to All Who Experience 2020. And for this, we turn in our text to Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 12. Now, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. What a great nickname, right? You kind of get the feeling that Jeremiah's middle school bully gave him that name and stuck with him. Speaking on behalf of God, Jeremiah prophesied that the destruction of Jerusalem, he warned the people that they must repent from their ungodly ways. And in 609 BC, King Jehoiakim was placed on the throne, and he was a foolish king, and, and, I, and Jeremiah warned him of the threat of Babylon. Yet in all his pride, Jehoiakim ignored uh, Jeremiah and held him in contempt. And in 601 BC, King Jer uh, Jehoiakim declared independence from Babylon. And as a result, the Babylonians came with brute force. They conquered Jerusalem. They carried the king and his family away into exile. And the Babylonian king set up a puppet ruler in the throne. The king's name was Zedekiah. And as Jeremiah had counseled Jehoiakim, Jeremiah also counseled Zedekiah, encouraging him to submit to the might of the powerful empire. And yet, he ignored him. And in 587 BC, he rebelled against the Babylonians and was defeated. But this time, when Babylon came, they came with overwhelming destruction. As Jeremiah prophesies were recorded, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The streets of Jerusalem were filled with corpses of her people. See, Jeremiah was in prison, 
And the words of the prophet Micah had been made 200 years earlier had finally come true. Israel was overcome. Its great city was destroyed. A nation was left destitute. They were a nation of complete hopelessness. So what kind of word does Jeremiah need to bring from God to the people? This we look at verse 12. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In this place, desolate and without people or animals, in all its towns there will be again pastures for shepherds to rest their flocks. In the towns of the hill country, of the western foothills, of the Negev, of the territories of the Benjamin, in the villages around Jerusalem, in the town of Judah, flocks will again pass under the hand of the one who counts them, says the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill a good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. And in those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will be in safety. This is the name by which it will be called, the Lord our righteous Savior. For this is what the Lord says, David will never fail to have a man sit on the throne of Israel, nor will the Levitical priest ever fail to have a man stand before me continually to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to present sacrifices. Does it feel like Jeremiah was talking about something else on a completely different planet than what the people are experiencing? Sometimes you need to talk about things to distract yourself from what's really happening. So take, for example, if I were to bring up sports right now, y'all would probably not want me to talk about college football right now. So there was another strange anniversary in sports that occurred this year. It was the anniversary of one of the greatest post-game interview rants of all time from Philadelphia 76ers great Allen Iverson. Let's play this clip here. But we talking about practice, man. What are we talking about? Practice? We talking about practice, man. We talking about practice. We talking about practice. We ain't talking about the game. We talking about practice, man. When you come in the arena and you see me play, you see me play, don't you? Absolutely. You see me give everything I got, right? Absolutely. But we talking about practice right now. We talking about practice. Man, I look. <laughs> the best part of this is that he doesn't stop repeating himself because he uses the word practice 22 times in response to a reporter asking him about his work ethic at practice after this horrible game they just had. He doesn't want to ask Iverson about the game and what just happened, but this horrible loss they received. He wanted to talk about practice. Practice. That's what I feel like the Hebrew people probably felt when Jeremiah proclaimed these words. I bet they asked, what does a long dead king have to do with the hell we are experiencing right now? Seriously, what does David, an adulterous and horrible father of a king, have to do with us experiencing the pain of the exile, the grief of losing the ones that we've loved, the devastation of having our daughters and wives ravaged by our enemies, to be ripped out of our homes, and to experience the overwhelming fear of the unknown. This is the word that Jeremiah brought to the people in this unimaginable horror. 
back when the pandemic started, we were in the thick of the Lenten season, and I had prepared and written an entire series on why God cares about our money and our relationship to it. I mean, I had written six full sermon manuscripts. And despite the fact that I had put so much time into research and writing, I'm not exactly sure that if I had come in the middle of the pandemic and preached to you series at that time on money, 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 you would have received it well. So I, I, I pivoted something a bit more realistic, a bit more introspection. I think Jeremiah would have at least given them something tangible to hold on to, but maybe he does. Let's consider the figure he's discussing in this speech, David. Anointed the second king of Israel, you remember him as the boy who killed Goliath. He was chosen by God to unite the kingdoms of Judah and Israel and had to establish a monarchy in the city of Jerusalem. And after the battles had been won, the enemies of the Hebrew people kept at bay. The Ark of the Covenant brought into the holy city. David declares that he now desires to build a temple for God. Probably the most significant chapter in all of the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 7, David declares, Here I am living in a palace of cedar while the ark remains in a tent. It was David's desire to build a temple for God, but God's response was to the contrary. The Lord promises David something interesting. Instead of a house for me you are building, I will build through you a lasting house. God promises David his kingdom, his throne would last forever and ever. And for nearly 400 years, a descendant of David occupied the throne in Judah. But Babylon had other plans. The fierce empire destroyed the great city, burned Solomon's temple, and took David's heir into exile. And so it seemed the people had a promise broken by God. Have you ever felt like this in your life? Where is God? You see, we all have, or maybe will experience a sense of hopelessness. For some, you've lost your job, and no matter what you do, you can't seem to find another. For others, we've swum desperately through the overwhelming waters of depression and isolation. Maybe you are or have had that heart-wrenching experience of, of separation or divorce. Still, some have the helplessness that crashes in because of the death of someone you've loved so desperately. There's the helplessness of piling debt and the letters from the lenders. There's the indescribable torment of sexual harassment and emotional and physical abuse. Psycholo uh, psychologists have been examining the nature of this pandemic and are having a hard time comparing it to anything in recent years. The closest world event they can compare it to, they think, is the Great Depression. But psychology has been talking about that the nature of this year has left this ubiquitous cloud hanging over everything, let alone those that have experienced the full brunt of its effects with sickness and death and job loss. Have you ever felt like you've been in an endless cycle of disappointment and hopelessness? Have you ever been in a place when the flood of emotion causes all this to come crashing in, but as soon as you begin to wade through the waters, you feel this great rush of water come and push you back down. 
I've experienced this through the eyes of people that I love. I've seen family and friends face uh, uh, treacherous years of depression. I've witnessed uh, people left from the destruction of a tsunami. I've heard the cries of mothers who've lost their children to terrible crimes. I've seen men and women face the uphill battle against cancer. You see, true hopelessness is when you feel so overwhelmed you can't see an end to the devastation. And when their world had been torn down, and it seemed like God had abandoned them, Jeremiah declares that a righteous branch will sprout up from the line of David. The word sprout comes from the Hebrew word meaning to spring forth or spring up, which has its origins uh, in the word root. The phrase draws the, uh, the assumption that a new root, a new life will spring up from the earth. The prophet paints an, an image of this new sprout that will come forth from the ashes of the exile. This image reminds me of the great devastation of a forest fire. A fire is great and mighty force, especially when it starts in a dense forest. In a matter of minutes, dead leaves and limbs catch fire, and these small flames cause a chain reaction that ignites the fate of a forest. And as smoke builds, wildlife evacuates their habitat, and when the blaze has accomplished its mission, A once beautiful and vibrant forest is left dead and vacant and in dismissal. And yet, a dramatic change will occur. Without man's hand controlling it, new plants and trees will begin to sprout and emerge. These pioneer plants begin the process of succession. And although this great blaze of a forest fire has brought death, it takes a sprout of new life to end the destruction. And so Jeremiah says that a day is coming, a sprout of new life will come out of death and destruction. Jeremiah proclaims that a righteous branch will spring up. We will do ourselves a disservice if we forget that Jeremiah is proclaiming these words of hope in a time of hell. He's not in a comfortable place speaking on behalf of God, but he's actually in prison. An army has invaded his country. they destroyed everything in sight while in the midst of, of counterintuitive acts. Jeremiah writes these words. Yet Jeremiah says that this sprout will come forth from the line of David out of what seems to be a dead stump, a failed dynasty of King David, new life will emerge. And who will this sprout come from? Who will this figure be? Will it be kingly or priestly? I often wonder the sort of figure these exiled Hebrews were trying to imagine. I wonder if they pictured a great military figure that would conquer the Babylonians and return the people back home. Some must have pictured this great religious figure who would restore Israel's righteousness. But the key is found in verse 16. Jeremiah proclaims that it will not be a mere man who will bring about righteousness, justice, and restoration, but rather this is the name by which it will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. But in the words of Tom Petty, the waiting is the hardest part. In fact, the two Hebrew words for hope, yakal and kwa'al, means wait for or to wait. It's the idea that hope is a state of anticipation, a a waiting of something better. And as years of the exile began to pass, I imagine that this message of Jeremiah began to fade within their hearts and their minds because no king came forth, no priest, 
no Messiah. Generations would pass, and eventually people returned to Israel. They would rebuild the great city of Jerusalem, and life would return to the streets and hills of the country. The shepherds would watch over their sheep, as promised by Jeremiah. But this pattern of being oppressed by an external power and cheated by internal powers would continue. Eventually, Rome would come. And although outwardly they were not slaves, inwardly the people of God were bound by a yoke of burden and shame. So where is this righteous branch? Where is this sprout of new life? Where is their priestly king? Where is God? Historically speaking, the Davidic line never returned to the throne. In fact, it would be 500 years beyond the exile before a messianic figure would arrive. But God wasn't absent. God would bring this Messiah. God would bring salvation and restoration. God would send a righteous branch to sprout among the people and to give them everlasting hope. But apparently God didn't get the memo on how the world wanted the Messiah to come. Because the Lord, our righteous Savior, would not come riding on a horse of battle like some great king. He didn't come wearing the religious garb and uniform of a great high priest. Instead, God manifests God's self among us through a baby. What? Excuse me? A baby? That's the plan, God? And just when is this going to happen? God became flesh through a teenage born through a teenage girl named Mary. She birthed him in Bethlehem, the city of David, and his family roots would spring forth out of David's line. She would name him Jesus, and he would come from the most humble beginnings. He would not be ushered into the spotlight with great parades and a fierce army by his side, but he would be welcomed into the world by being wrapped in cloth and placed in the animal feeding trough. It was not a, a great kings that came and celebrated his birth, but humble shepherds. His rise in the public arena was not in any some great city or among the affluent, but he would begin his ascension in Galilee, a region of the poorest and most insignificant in all of Israel. And he began his ascension through serving the needy and the broken. He gave hope to the destitute and a foundation for the weak, but don't mistake his humble beginnings and servitude for weakness. For Jesus was the sprout of new life that came after the devastation of a forest fire known as Babylon and Persia and Rome. Jesus sprouted forth from the line of David, not calling his followers to bear arms or to take back what is theirs by force. Instead, he called them to faith. Jesus called his followers to see into and through the circumstances that they are facing, to know that God is right here and now with them as they experience hardship. And that this hardship might, through it, you might find peace and joy, love and hope through faith. As Thomas Aquinas put it, faith has to do with things that are not seen and hope with things than are not at hand. I wonder if the words of the ancient scriptures can speak truth to us today. 
For in the same way that Jeremiah proclaimed a message of new life that was to come and that God who stepped into human history as a Savior who spoke and touched and embodied hope can bring us hope today. I wonder if we're willing to see that God has not abandoned us, but God is present with us, infusing us with God's hope through Christ and through the work of the Holy Spirit. In a time of hopelessness, do we cling to faith in Jesus to bring us hope or in something else? We wouldn't be watching worship live stream or joining worship in person if we didn't believe in Jesus. But my question was, do we cling to that faith for hope in times of hopelessness or something else? The Hebrew word hope has several connotations to it. And one of it means a cord attached to something. In other words, I'm holding on to my end of this rope knowing whatever is at the other end of that rope is going to keep me safe and bring me through this. And if you were to trace your way from, from the one end of the rope to the other, what would you find? Would you find God at the other end or some other human effort for hope? For some, we cling to our deep wallets, for others, we put up a wall to block ourselves off from the rest of the world. For some, we cling to the false hope of, of trying to measure our lives in so many different ways. Quickly departing from this election season, it was so easy to see how people cling to political candidates as if one politician is going to save our world. For some, we cling closely to our shallow relationships as if Cheap and, cheap and self-centered love will bring us somewhere. Too often we cling on to things that will bring us nothing but temporal security and comfort. In an attempt at self-preservation, we will grab onto anything that will give us some semblance of hope. What do you cling on to for hope? Jesus or something else? I'm reminded of the scene from the movie The Jerk, uh, starring Steve Martin. It's a, a story of a man who unintentionally made millions of dollars only to see it taken away. His life is broken, and he's being kicked out of his mansion, and he's trying to figure out what he wants to take with him. Let's watch the scene. The flower dress that you say the thermos song to. Well, I'm gonna go then. <laughs> And I don't need any of this. I don't need this stuff. And I don't need you. I don't need anything. Except this. And I tell you, that's the only thing I need is this. I don't need this or this. Just this ashtray. Just this paddle game. The ashtray and the paddle game, that's all I need. And this remote control. The ashtray, the pilot game, and the remote control, and that's all I need. And these matches. The ashtray, and these matches, and the remote control, and the paddle ball. This lamp. The ashtray, this paddle game, and the remote control, and the lamp, and that's all I need. 
That reality, this can be us. In desperation, we will cling on to the things that have no worth. What do you cling on to when the world is turned upside down? When the foundations begin to shake? As we enter into this Advent season, may we see the invitation of God through faith to cling on to the hope grounded in Jesus. As Anne Lamont put it, Hope begins in the dark, the stubborn hope that if we just show up and try to do the right thing, the dawn will come. You wait and watch and work. You don't give up. Since the moment that God broke into human history by sending Jesus to us, human history has never been the same. To each person who they encounter Jesus, they ask, what can you do for me? For some, the answer was simple. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and you I place my hope. For the others, the answer is not as simple, because as a people, we need our security uh, hastened, our immediate needs to be met, our desires to be fulfilled, and so Christ doesn't make sense to us. Therefore, we reject him because he doesn't fit into our immediate time frame. But here is when we have turned our ideology of Jesus around. Since we are people who want and desire and have our needs to be met and place our expectations on Jesus like he's supposed to do and say what we want from him. And yet I'm here to say this morning that a journey with Jesus is not a call for him to fulfill our expectations, but a call to place our hope into something greater than ourselves. I'm sure the ancient Hebrew people who, who found themselves in the exile of Babylon would have loved for the priestly king to come instantaneously. I'm sure Jeremiah, as he watched the destruction of Jerusalem and as he was carried away into prison, would have loved for a messianic figure to break into history at that moment. And like the ancients, so many of the expectations we place upon God are things that we want to happen right now. And the hope of Jesus Christ is something worth living for. Something that brings us through the destitution. Hope in the kingdom of God is not just an untouchable future, but it's here and now and yet to come. Hope in God who is present with us. A sprout of new life broke into human history in the form of a new baby. He didn't come at the time we expected. He didn't go into his business in the way that people desired. His methods and his ethics offended so many, yet the priestly king came. He didn't sit on a throne in Jerusalem, taking joy and pushing down the broken and adorn himself with wealth. Instead, he extended invitation to all who will come and follow him. Follow in the way of his kingdom. Hope means to live in a state of anticipation 
and waiting for something better. It's looking forward because you can look backwards and see that God is at work. And in turn, we look forward in faith, knowing that we have a living hope in Christ. This Advent season, will you recognize and embrace the hope that's brought through Christ? Will you allow him to bring new life into your heart and your mind and your soul in this great destitution we find ourselves in? Christ is our hope. Can we accept this gift from God? As one theologian put it, many things are possible for the person who has hope. Even more is possible for the person who has faith. And still more is possible for the person who knows how to love. But everything is possible for the person who practices all three virtues.